Would you want to fight this army? Quote, 300 giants, all armed with free stone, amazingly big, yet not quite as big as you, except one who is their chief and called Werewolf. He wears a complete armour of Cyclopean anvils. They're also 63,000 foot, all in hobgoblin skin armour. Strong and courageous men. 11,400 men at arms, 3,600 double cannons and siege artillery without number. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of August's book Gargantua and Pantagruel by Francois Rabelais published in the 1530s. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. But beware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com welcome to bookshook so this episode is all about book two of gargantua and pantagruel it's called pantagruel there are some very adult themes throughout the book it's not a book for children there are scenes of a sexual nature there's sexual coercion there's a lot of sexism and misogyny and i would check the content of the novel before reading it you've been warned so, the author, Alka Freebus, begins the work saying how important the story is and that it should be believed. He describes how a particular position of the stars causes growths in men, including that of Pantagruel, Gargantua's son. He's born hairy and with a retinue, including, quote, cartloads of leeks and onions. His mother, Badibek, dies in childbirth and Gargantua reflects on the joy of of a new son and the despair of losing his beloved Badibek. Quote, his mind was troubled with the doubt whether he ought to weep in mourning for his wife or laugh out of delight at his son. On either side, he found sophistical arguments which took his breath away. There's plenty of hyperbole, just like in Gargantua, of how the young Pantagruel eats such as, quote, swigging off the milk of 4,600 cows. Now, Pantagruel gets educated at many French universities. He meets a scholar who speaks a mishmash of native speech and Latin, who proves, quote, the truth of the philosopher Aulus Gellius's observation that we ought to speak the language in common use and of Octavian Augustus's maxim that we should shun obsolete words as carefully as ships, pilots avoiding the rocks at sea. Now he discovers the library of Saint-Victor in Paris and there's a long list of some of the outlandish books denigrating most of the professions and institutions of the time, such as, quote, the ramblings of ballad makers or, quote, the shackles of religion. Now his father Gargantua writes a letter telling him to study hard with his tutor Epistemon and gives advice such as, quote, learn the rules of astronomy but leave divinatory astrology alone for their frauds and vanities. He also tells him that he's got to learn many languages. Now later, Pantagruel, coincidentally, sees a man that he immediately thinks is highborn. Quote, this is Pantagruel thinking. His physiognomy tells me for certain that he is from rich and noble stock. Now the poor hungry man then recounts in many different languages how hungry he is and that he wants food. And Pantagruel and his companions, ironically, don't understand the languages. The hungry man says in Greek, quote, 
All lovers of learning are agreed, however, that speeches and words are superfluous when the facts are evident to all. Speeches are only necessary when the facts under discussion are not completely clear. Now, this man's name is Panurge. He's clearly visibly hungry and in dire need of sustenance. Words are not necessary. Is this a comment on Gargantua's letter where he was so keen for Pantagruel to learn languages? Now, Pantagruel is asked to help in a trial between two arguing people. Pantagruel insists that all the paperwork that has gone into procrastinating over the verdict be destroyed. They both put forward their cases in gobbledygook. Here's a flavour. Quote, And I see ordinarily in all good bagpipes that when one goes luring birds, making three turns of a broom about the chimney piece and putting one's name on the record, all one does is to bend the bow backwards and blow one's rear horn, if it happens to be too hot, and then skedaddle. I feel like I'm reading Beckett again. Now, Pantagruel's verdict is equally meaningless, but everyone is in rapture at his decision. It's all very Emperor's New Clothes. Panurge explains how he escaped from being captured and almost killed on a spit roast by some Turks. And he goes on to explain how he would protect Paris using bodily parts of females. It's a very misogynistic and offensive chapter. I'm not particularly enjoying this Panurge character very much. He even is childish enough to play constant practical jokes on people with little trinkets that he stores in his pocket, such as vial of oil that he smears on people's clothes as a practical joke or in another pocket there's some itching powder which quote he threw down the backs of those women whom he saw carrying their heads highest and so made some of them strip before all the world and others dance like a cock on hot cinders or a drumstick on a drum and still others run about the streets and he after them and he would offer to hold his cloak at the back of those who stripped like a courteous and good-mannered gentleman. I'm really liking Panurge even less now. He also robs money from church and swindles people out of their wealth. Now, one day, a philosopher from England wants to battle out some ideas with Pantagruel. Quote, I do not wish to dispute in the academic manner by declamation, nor yet by numbers, as Pythagoras did, and as Pico Mirandola wished to do at Rome. I desire to dispute by signs, only without speech, for these matters are so difficult that human words would not be adequate to expound them to my satisfaction. But Panurge offers to step in and debate on Pantagruel's behalf. Quote, I will answer and argue against Master Englishman, and if I don't reduce him to speechlessness, then abuse me as you will. Now, Pantagruel accepts Panurge's offer, so that night, Panurge reads up on a whole load of unscientific books, such as, quote, on numbers and signs, on things indescribable, on magic, on the meaning of dreams, on signs, on unspeakable things, on things better not discussed. All these titles are translated from the Latin. Now, there's a whole chapter where Taumas, this English philosopher, and Panurge battle out these ideas using only sign language. This is quite comical and at one point involves the insertion of fingers in orifices and throwing oranges. Again, more emperors, new clothes. It's a very bizarre chapter. After this battle, Thaumas is astounded by Panurge's, quote, argument. He says, quote, you have here in your presence an incomparable treasure, I mean my Lord Pantagruel, whose renown has brought me here from the farthest corner of England to confer with him on certain insoluble problems of magic, alchemy, the Kabbalah, geomancy and astrology, also of philosophy, 
all of which had been lost in my mind, but now I protest that fame seems to have a grudge against him, for she does not report the thousandth part of his talents. You have seen how his mere pupil has satisfied me and told me more even than I asked of him. And then the chapter ends with this wonderful dismissal by Alka Fribas, the writer of the book. Quote, as for the significance of the propositions set out by Thaumast and the meaning of the signs which they used in argument, I would have expounded them to you, but I am told that Thaumast has made a great book of them, printed in London, in which he explains everything without exception. Therefore, I refrain for the present. Now, I wonder what Roland Barthes, the great French philosopher who studied signs, would have made of this chapter. Panerge falls in love with a married woman and desperately tries to sleep with her, but she resists him, almost having to fight him off. Well, because he is rejected, he plays a practical joke on her, what a surprise, by covering her fine clothes in food that drives the local dogs wild and follow her, causing her to, quote, run and hide. It's certainly not a fun chapter to read. I'm just hoping this is the setting up of a horrible fall for Panerge of some kind. Fingers crossed. Now, Pantagruel leaves Paris on a ship with his companions on hearing that the country is being invaded by the Dispsodes. He's going to fight them. Now, as an aside, Panurge explains why leagues are shorter in France. It's a strange sexual reason. He's really beginning to annoy me, this Panurge character. Now, Pantagruel receives a gold ring from Paris and Panurge deduces that it is from a mistress that Pantagruel left in a hurry. The ring has the inscription, quote, Why have you forsaken me? They arrive at the port of Utopia, which is being besieged by the enemy, and Pantagruel's companions plan to infiltrate the troops to gain information and plan an attack. Panurge, through stealth, Epistemon, using military science, Eusthenes, using the might of Hercules, and Carpalim, using grace and, quote, leaping over their trenches. As they're making these plans, they spy 600 soldiers riding towards them to investigate the ship and they manage to rope them up and burn them using their cunning. Some of them, they keep prisoner and question them about the size of the army they're due to face. The prisoner tells them the army is huge, as I mentioned, at the start of the podcast. Quote, 300 giants, all armed with freestone, amazingly big, yet not quite as big as you, except one, who was their chief and called Werewolf. He wears a complete armour of cyclopean anvils. There are also 63,000 foot, all in hobgoblin skin armour, strong and courageous men, etc. Now, the band appeared to be fearless. Pantagruel spends some time erecting a monument to celebrate the cunning of the band that they managed to defeat these 600 men. I really like that Pantagruel wants to celebrate success whenever it occurs. There's no waiting until the final battle is over. They're celebrating success when it happens. Good advice to anyone, I think. Anyway, Pantagruel does stop the feasting and we hear another lovely rehearsal. Remember I mentioned them in Gargantua? Listen to this. Quote, Then, said Pantagruel, Come, my lads, we have brooded here too long on our victuals. It is no easy thing, as we know, for great feasters to perform great deeds of arms. But there is no shade like that of banners, there is no smoke like that of horses, nor clattering like that of armour. At this, Epistemon began to smile and said, There is no shade like that of kitchens, no smoke like pie smoke, and no clattering like that of cups. To which Panurge answered, There is no shade like that of curtains, no smoke like steaming breasts, and no clattering like the sound of ballocks. And then Pantagruel, let's... And then Pantagruel lets off some wind and creates little men and women more hyperbole and there'll be more on this hyperbole later 
Now Pantagruel releases the prisoners to tell their leader, King Anarch, that he has an army of 18,000 on the way and that he should prepare a feast for him at noon tomorrow. Now their actual plan is to attack at night as King Anarch's warriors are settling down to rest. He gives the messenger pastels to give to the king, which inflame the tongue and get everyone drinking. So it transpires that Pantagruel has to fight 300 giants, albeit drunk giants. Algafribus laments, quote, Oh, who will now have skill to relate how Pantagruel bore himself against the 300 giants? Oh, my muse, my Calliope, my Talia, inspire me at this hour. Restore to me my spirits, for here is that bridge where asses stumble. Here is the pitfall. Here the supreme difficulty. How shall I have power to describe the dreadful battle which then took place? Would to God I had a bottle of the best wine ever drunk by those who shall read this most authentic history. Well, spoiler alert, he does defeat them. I'll let you read the details, but it involves a very over-the-top battle scene involving using the chief enemy, werewolf, like a scythe against his own men. Now, Epistemon has his head cut off in the battle, but Panurge sews his head back on. And Epistemon explains how he went to both Hell and the Elysian Fields and got chatting with some devils who, quote... Don't treat them, i.e. the damned, as badly as you'd think. I saw Alexander the Great darning breeches for a miserable livelihood. Xerxes was hawking mustard. Romulus sold tax salt. Numa sold nails. Tarkin was a miser. Etc, etc. And there's this huge catalogue of famous names and what they're up to now they're in hell. I particularly liked Emperor Nero's description. Quote, Nero was a fiddler and Fierabras his serving man. But he played his master a thousand tricks made him eat brown bread and drink sour wine, but himself ate and drank of the best. Julius Caesar and Pompey were ship corkers. He adds that, quote, On the other hand, the philosophers and those who had been penurious in this world had their turn at being great lords down below. Now, the inhabitants of the great, grand city of Utopia called Amarots are delighted that King Anarch has been overthrown and Pantagruel, emulating the underworld, gives him the job of hawking green sauce in the street. And we learn how the author of the work, Alcafribus, has been living in Pantagruel's mouth for six months. Alcafribus jumps out of his mouth and Pantagruel says, quote, Where have you come from, Alcafribus? From your throat, my lord, I replied. And since when were you there, said he? Since the time when you went against the army rods, said I. That's more than six months ago, said he. And what did you live on? What did you drink? My lord, I replied, the same fare as you. I took toll of the tastiest morsels that went down your throat. Indeed, said he. And, and where did you defecate? In your throat, my lord, said I. Ha ha, you are a fine fellow, said he. We have, by God's help, conquered the whole country of the Dispodes. I confer on you the wardenship of Salmon Gundia. Many thanks, my lord, I said. You reward me beyond my deserts. Again, there's that hyperbole. Alcafribus describes the hairs on his ears as great forests and his teeth as mountains. Pantagruel becomes ill, possibly due to the exploits of Alcafribus in his mouth, and the hot bath regions of France are explained by the, quote, hot piss of Pantagruel rather than any scientific or rational explanation. He's mocking those touters of pseudoscience and irrationality. 
Quote, and I am greatly astonished at the crowd of foolish philosophers and doctors who waste time disputing where the heat of these waters comes from, whether it is because of the borax or the sulphur or the alum or the saltpetre which the minerals contain, for they are only rambling and they would do better to go and rub their rumps against a thistle than waste their time like this, disputing about something they do not know the origin of, for the answer is easy and there is no need to make further inquiry. These baths are hot because they arose from a hot piss by the good pantagruel. Now, the final chapter is an advert for the next book in the series. Quote, Now, gentlemen, you have heard a beginning of the horrific history of my lord and master Pantagruel, and here I will make an end of this present book, for I have a slight headache, and I clearly see that the registers of my brain are somewhat confused by this new September wine. You will have the rest of the story at the very next Frankfurt Book Fair, when you will learn how Panurge was married and cuckolded within a month of his wedding, how Pantagruel found the Philosopher's Stone, together with the manner of his finding it and using it, also how he crossed the Caspian Mountains, how he sailed across the Atlantic Sea, etc, etc. You get the idea. I'm glad to hear that it didn't go that well for that despicable Panurge. He reminds me a little of the devil in Milton's Paradise Lost. Evil, but possibly the most interesting character in the novel. Now, Alcafribus ends the book of Pantagruel with this lovely aside. Quote, If you say to me, it does not seem very wise of you to have written down all this gay and empty balderdash for us, I would reply that you do not show yourselves much wiser by taking pleasure in the reading of it. Still, if you read it as I wrote it, for mere amusement, we are both more deserving of forgiveness than that great rabble of false cenobites, hooded cheats, sluggards, hypocrites, canters, thumpers, monks in boots, and other such sects of people who have disguised themselves like maskers to deceive the world. For while they give the common folk to understand that they are only occupied in contemplation and devotions, in fast and the mortification of the flesh, except in so far as it is necessary to sustain and nourish their slight and frail human natures. In reality, they live very well. God knows how well. Good riddance to the hypocrites. Amen. And there the book ends. What a fascinating read, delving into the issues that Renaissance man in France was facing, poverty, politics, war. And it was interesting to hear the kind of humour that was obviously very bawdy at the time, still is. This very earthy humour centred around sex, drinking and defecation. It's very different to the kind of humour popular now. Well, maybe that's just me, I don't know. But it does seem very renaissance, perhaps. There's some lovely ideas. I love the Abbey of Telame from the first book. I think in Pantagruel, the idea of empiricism is continued. Pantagruel wants to interview those two people that were arguing on trial directly without that mountain of paperwork that has accrued around the trial. In fact, he even has it burnt. And we also have Panurge trying to decipher a message to Pantagruel from a lady in Paris. He uses a variety of scientific methods to find some kind of writing on the paper that was sent to him. Quote, he put the letter before the fire to see if it was not written with sal almoniac soaked in water. Then he put it in water to see if it was not written with titmal's juice. After that, he held it up in front of a candle to see if it was not written with the juice of white onions. Then he rubbed a part of it with walnut oil to see if it was not written with figwood ash. Then he rubbed a part of it with the milk of a woman suckling her firstborn daughter to see if it was not written with bullfrog's blood. Then he rubbed a corner with the ashes of a swallow's nest to see if it was written in the dew that is found in the winter cherry. 
Then he rubbed another corner with earwax to see if it was written in Ravensgall. Then he soaked it in vinegar to see if it was written in castor oil. Then he anointed it with bat's grease to see if it was written in whale sperm, which is called ambergris. Then he put it quite gently in a basin of fresh water and drew it out quickly to see if it was written in feather alum. Scientific thinking, or in fact, probably quite magical thinking, parading all these crazy ideas that would have probably been quite well known to a few people living at the time. That emperor's new clothes idea was really interesting. I liked how Pantagruel resolved the dispute with those two arguing people with just complete and utter nonsense verbiage. And then this is taken a step further when Panurge argues with Talmas, the English philosopher, using just nonsensical facial expressions and bizarre hand signals that would have very much pleased Derrida or Bart or another French philosopher, I'm sure. It does make one think about the value of cogent argument using language and rhetoric to make sense of the world and how when this breaks down, chaos ensues. Also, however, makes me realise that there is certainly more to an argument than just text. Is it an argument for empiricism, the world viewed using principles of science? And when these principles are neglected, where are we going to end up? And what do you think? How would you interpret these two strange battles? One with nonsense words, the other with nonsense signs. Again, everything is over the top in this book, Pantagruel. Hyperbole reigns supreme. The amount that is drunken and the size of Gargantua and Pantagruel. And remember the gestation of Gargantua for 11 months. Now, when Panurge falls in love and suggests a bout of lovemaking, she pushes him back, quote, more than 300 miles. I mean, that's not physically possible, right? And Carpalim, when their band is hungry, captures with his speed, quote, four great bustards, seven bitterns, 26 grey partridges, 32 red ones, 16 pheasants, nine woodcocks, 19 herons, 32 wood pigeons, and with his feet he killed 10 or 12 leverets and rabbits, which were already past their pagehood, also 18 rails running in couples, 15 young bulls, two badgers, three large foxes. I love these little dips into complete fantasy, little scenes that create such bizarre and memorable images in my mind. Now, Alcafribus, I'm not sure how much he can be relied. It's a very human narration. If you listen to my podcast on Beckett, you'll remember how I quite admired the narrator's inaccurate or foggy recollection of past events in the book. And you get the same thing with Alcafribus, which is really refreshing. When describing what happened to King Anarch, he describes how Pantagruel emulates what happens in the underworld to evildoers. Quote, Therefore, one day he dressed his king in a dainty little canvas doublet, all jagged and slashed like an Albanian's headdress, and in fine sailor's trousers, though without shoes, for, said he, they would spoil his eyesight, and in a little blue bonnet with a great cape on his feather. No, I'm wrong. I think there were two feathers in it. And in a fine blue and green persever belt. Now, that little correction really brings the story alive, makes us feel like we're being narrated to by a real flesh and blood human person with an infallible memory. And I just love that. So overall thoughts, to me, the book is about humour, how to chastise hubris, how to think empirically about the world, and just a daring tale of courage and cunning. My favourite moment was definitely from Gargantua, the part when the monk went completely ballistic at all those ruffians trying to steal the grapes. As long as you can put up with a very sexist and misogynistic, quote, humour and the, all the ribald humour, 
you should enjoy it. I know exactly the person I'm going to recommend it to. He's got a very dirty sense of humour, loves talking of drink. I won't mention his name. I'd say I love parts of this book and other parts I kind of liked. There were some parts I wanted to really skim over, some of the Panurge stories. But overall, I really like these two books, Pantagra and Gargantua. Thank you, Rabelais. I would, when I get a bit more time, I'm going to finish books three, four and five. Talking of Rabelais, I don't know a huge amount about him, apart from the fact that he's French and living in the 1530s. So Wikipedia, rescue me. So Rabelais. Dates, 1494 to 1553. He's a French satirist. His writings are noted for their earthy humour. Yes, their parody of medieval learning and literature and their affirmation of humanist values. Notable works, Pantagruel and Gargantua. He was a doctor. He was ecclesiastical and anti-clerical. He was a Christian and a free thinker. And he was a bon vivant. The multiple facets of his personality sometimes seem contradictory. I'm quoting from Wikipedia right now. Caught up in the religious and political turmoil of the Reformation, Rabelais treated the great questions of his time in his novels. Assessments of his life and work have evolved over time depending on dominant paradigms of thought. Rabelais admired Erasmus and is considered a Christian humanist. He was critical of medieval scholasticism, lampooning the abuses of powerful princes and popes, opposing them with Greco-Roman learning and popular culture. His taste for popular satire led John Calvin to attack Rabelais in 1550. Known most widely for the first two volumes relating the childhoods of the giants Gargantua and Pantagruel in the style of Bildungsroman, Rabelais' later work in the third book and the fourth book prefigures the philosophical novel and the parodic epic. His literacy legacy is such that the word Rabelaisian designates something that is, quote, marked by gross, robust humour, extravagance of caricature, or bold naturalism. The place and date of his birth are unknown. He was probably born in November 1494 near Chinon in the province of Touraine, where his father worked as a lawyer. The estate of La Devinière in Soilly, in the modern-day Andre et Loire, allegedly the writer's birthplace, houses a Rabelais museum. Rabelais became a novice of the Franciscan order and was later sent to Fontenay-le-Comte in Poitou where he studied Greek and Latin, as well as science, philology and law, already becoming known and respected by the humanists of his era, including Huilam Bude. Frustrated with the Franciscan order's ban on the study of Greek because of Erasmus's commentary on the Greek version of the Gospel of St. Luke, Rabelais petitioned Pope Clement VII and gained permission to leave the Franciscans and to enter the Benedictine order at Malaise in Poitou. Later he left the monastery to study medicine at the University of Poitiers and at the University of Montpellier. In 1532 he moved to Lyon, one of the intellectual centres of the Renaissance, and began working as a doctor at the hospital Hôtel du de Lyon. During his time in Lyon he edited Latin works for the printer Sebastian Griffius and wrote a famous admiring letter to Erasmus to accompany the transmission of a Greek manuscript from the printer. Griffius published Rabelais' translations and annotations of Hippocrates, Galen and Giovanni Manado. As a physician, he used his spare time to write and publish humorous pamphlets, critical of established authority and preoccupied with the educational and monastic mores of the time. In 1532, under the pseudonym Algafribus Nazier, an anagram of François Rabelais, he published his first book, Pantagruel, King of the Dipsodes the first of his Gargantua series. The idea 
of basing an allegory on the lives of giants came to Rabelais from the folklore legend of Les Grandes Chroniques du Grand et Enorme Géant Gargantua, which was sold as popular literature at the time in the form of inexpensive pamphlets by Colporteur and at the fairs of Lyon. Pantagruelism is an eat, drink and be merry philosophy, which led his books into disfavour with the theologians, but brought them popular success and the admiration of later critics for their focus on the body. This first book, critical of the existing monastic and educational system, contains the first known occurrence in French, the words Encyclopedia, Cabal, Progress and Utopia, among others. Despite the book's popularity, both it and the subsequent prequel book about the life and exploits of Pantagruel's father Gargantua were condemned by the Sorbonne in 1543 and other clerics in 1545. Rabelais taught medicine at Montpellier in 1534 and again in 1539. In 1537, Rabelais gave an anatomy lesson at Lyon's Hôtel Dieu using the corpse of a hanged man. Etienne Dolay, with whom Rabelais was close at this time, wrote of these anatomy lessons in his Carmina. Rabelais travelled frequently to Rome with his friend and patient Cardinal Jean de Ballet and lived for a short time in Turin, part of the household of de Ballet's brother, Huelin. Rabelais also spent some time lying low under periodic threat of being condemned of heresy, depending upon the health of his various protectors. Only the protection of du Bellet saved Rabelais after the condemnation of his novel by the Sorbonne. In June 1543, Rabelais became a master of requests. Between 1545 and 1547, Francois Rabelais lived in Metz, then a free imperial city and a republic, to escape the condemnation by the University of Paris. In 1547, he became curate of Saint-Christophe-de-Jambay in Maine and of Meudon near Paris. With support from members of the prominent du Bellet family, Rabelais had received approval from King Francis I to continue to publish his collection. However, after the king's death in 1547, the academic elite frowned upon Rabelais and the French Parliament suspended the sale of his fourth book published in 1552. Rabelais resigned from the curacy in January 1553 and died in Paris later that year. Well, all I can say is thank you very much, Rabelais. I really enjoyed reading those two books. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about September's book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. It's 401 pages. It's published in 2022. It's only a year old. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to chapter five called Pivots on page 211. Now, the reason I am reading this book is because my mother-in-law said, oh, Roger, you're interested in computing and computers and you've done some programming. I think you'll enjoy this. And she actually, she gave it to me for my birthday. So um, haven't got a clue what it's going to be like. I have seen some comments that say it's supposed to be very good. I'm looking forward to having a read of it. I'm going to read out the first maybe chapter and uh, see what we think. So, this is not a romance, but it is about love. It says in the front page there. Right, okay, chapter one. Before Mazer invented himself as Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. And before he was Samson Mazer, he was Samson Mazur, a change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. And for most of his youth, he was Sam, S-A-M, on the hall of fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. 
On a late December afternoon in the wailing 20th century, Sam exited a subway car and found the artery to the escalator clogged by an inert mass of people who were gaping at a station advertisement. Sam was late. He had a meeting with his academic advisor that he had been postponing for over a month, but that everyone agreed absolutely needed to happen before winter break. Sam didn't care for crowds, being in them, or whatever foolishness they tended to enjoy en masse, but this crowd would not be avoided. He would have to force his way through it if he were to be delivered to the above-ground world. Sam wore an elephantine navy wool peacoat that he had inherited from his roommate, Marks, who had bought it freshman year from the Army-Navy surplus store in town. Marks had left it mouldering in its plastic shopping bag just short of an entire semester before Sam asked if he might borrow it. That winter had been unrelenting, and it was an April, nor Easter, April. What madness these Massachusetts winters. That finally wore Sam's pride down enough to ask Marks for the forgotten coat. Sam pretended that he liked the style of it, and Marks said that Sam might as well take it, which is what Sam knew he would say. Like most things purchased from the Army-Navy surplus store, the coat emanated mould, dust and the perspiration of dead boys. And Sam tried not to speculate why the garment had been surplused. That's dark thinking. Anyway, but the coat was far warmer than the windbreaker he had brought from California his freshman year. He also believed that the large coat worked to conceal his size. The coat, its ridiculous scale, only made him look smaller and more childlike. That is to say, Sam Masseur, at age 21, did not have a build for pushing and shoving, and so, as much as possible, he weaved through the crowd, feeling somewhat like the doomed amphibian from the video game Frogger. He found himself uttering a series of excuse me's uh, that he did not mean. A truly magnificent thing about the way the brain was coded, Sam thought, was that it could say excuse me while meaning screw you. Unless they were unreliable or clearly established as lunatics or scoundrels, characters in novels, movies and games were meant to be taken at face value. The totality of what they did or what they said. But people, the ordinary, the decent and basically honest couldn't get through the day without that one indispensable bit of programming that allowed you to say one thing and mean, feel, even do another. Very interesting. Looking forward to hearing about the life of Sam Mazer. He obviously thinks quite deeply about how humans operate, the underlying codes of what people say and what they really mean. He obviously really likes computer games. Also, it's quite clear that he was a ostensibly nice Jewish boy at one point and he likes his new coat, which is warm. Anyway, looking forward to reading that. Hopefully you can join me. Thanks very much for listening to this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. If you want to recommend a future book to read together, let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up or subscribe and give it five stars on your episode app if you can. Thank you very much. I look forward to discussing the first half of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin at the next episode of Bookshook. That's on the second Friday of September, the 8th of September. See you then. Mm -hmm.